Well, good morning. I'm Cody and Tisdell. I'm the pastor of worship and students. If we haven't met yet, uh, this means that I get to work alongside a really cool group of volunteers with our middle school and high school students. Um, and I also uh, get to work with all the wonderful people you see up here each week leading us in music. Aaron and I kind of flip-flopped today. Um, and I'm going to kick off a new series where we're going to journey through together First and Second Timothy. Uh, and we're calling this series Roots of a Healthy Church. So if you want to get out your Bibles, follow along. You can find a Bible tucked under some of the chairs around. We're going to be in 1 Timothy. We will cover the first 11 verses, 1, 1 through 11. It's page 991 if you're using one of those Bibles from around the room. And uh, for your note taking, the title of the message today is The Highly Charged Household. Maybe for some of us, that was the title of our morning. <laughs> Many of my weekday mornings, getting our kids up and out the door. Well, yeah, I mean Emily mostly. But often you could title it that. The main point, though, that we'll argue from 1 Timothy 1 through 11 is this. A healthy church must have leaders who know and protect true doctrine along with all its members. We'll see this charge given directly to the leader of this church, but indirectly, you're all implicated in this as well, right? We should all be concerned with knowing, protecting the core set of beliefs of the Christian faith, but even then, the buck is going to stop somewhere, right? And so that's the main point. A healthy church must have leaders who know and protect true doctrine along with all its members, before we jump into the specific passage we're in today, I'm going to do a little bit of the heavy lifting for the context of this, setting up the rest of our series. Questions like, who's this dude, Timothy? Uh, what's this place, Ephesus, that we're talking about? Why do we care about a letter written to him there? Let's start with Timothy first. Timothy, a, a, a lot could be said about Timothy because we have a pretty full account of what Timothy's life is like from all the times he's mentioned in the Bible. Um, but I'm going to try to just highlight a couple and restrain myself so we don't take forever. Uh, but Timothy, some interesting things about him is he is half Greek, he's half Jew, which probably creates some problems in some of the contexts he's in, but actually serves him really well for the main ministries that he's called to. He's an amazing example of discipleship, and he's a, a demonstration of the Apostle Paul's conviction that he should do ministry in partnership with people he's mentoring so that there's a next generation coming along, a conviction all of us should have. The mentions of Timothy span the timeline of all of Paul's writings. He's even mentioned as the co-sender of six of the letters that we have in our Bible from Paul. Timothy is most likely a teenager when Paul sees his potential and invites him to come along with his missionary journeys. And he's learning, he's growing, and, and Paul is mentoring him. And as he does, Paul starts to send him on some solo assignments. First to the Thessalonian church, which goes really well. <laughs> Timothy brings back a good report about what's going on there. Then Paul sends him to remind the Corinthian church about the teachings that Paul gave them while he was there. And by all accounts, if you know anything about 1st or 2nd Corinthians, we can assume that these churches, or this church, ate this guy alive, right? If you think about those letters, you know things are getting absolutely wild in Corinth. 
And Timothy, he, he often gets painted as a weak or a timid guy. Um, I think as I've been studying his life more, there, some of those might actually be a little overblown. We're making some jumps and connecting some things. But it is reasonable with how boldness and fear are brought up so often by Paul that it could be possible that that is a true of Timothy. What we do know, though, is that in Corinth, Timothy fails. <laughs> Timothy fails his assignment in Corinth. He doesn't convincingly teach the apostles instruction to the people. He's unable to defend Paul's position and he just returns to Paul in Ephesus. Perhaps this is why Paul sends Titus, maybe a little bigger personality. Paul himself goes. So here's the the beautiful thing in the story of this gifted young disciple. Here's why I'm telling you this. Even after being chewed up and spit out by an unhealthy church. A story far too common, right? If Timothy wasn't averse to conflict, maybe that experience there in Corinth would have made him that way. And whether Timothy failed that church, whether that church failed him, or both, right? Even still, Timothy remains the most widely known co-laborer of Paul. Later, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, the Philippian church. In Philippians, we see that he's telling them, I hope to send Timothy to you. And here's what he says about him. He says, I have no one like him. There's no one as concerned about your welfare as Timothy will be. Paul says, you guys know his value. You know how hard he works in serving the gospel. You know his incredible worth, right? So whatever personality deficiencies Timothy had or didn't have, there's one thing that is not left in doubt, and that's that Timothy has a pastoral heart and a willingness to work hard and to grow. I connect <laughs> with this story. I've, I've shared many times before how much it felt like I failed in my last ministry at my last church, right? How I've doubted whether in those moments I had something to offer in ministry. And whether this thing about Timothy is true of him or not, it's true of me. I am apprehensive, to say the least, when it comes to conflict. Right? That's why Aaron, who knows this about me, he laughed maniacally as he assigned this text to me to preach. Right? This this whole sermon is basically a prank on me. To make me talk about confrontation. I'm, I'm often quiet in situations where I need to speak assertively. I'm often fearful at times that require boldness and truth. But where I find hope, where all of us who have tried and failed should find hope is in this story of Timothy. Because you see, Timothy is becoming exactly the leader this church in Ephesus needs. In fact, at the end of all the adventures that God has in store for Timothy, he returns here to Ephesus. The early Greek historian Eusebius, he documents that Timothy becomes the first bishop of Ephesus. 
He's the bishop of all the churches and he ministers there in that place for the rest of his life till he dies in AD 97. And if early church tradition is true, here's how this guy that we think is weak and timid, here's how he dies. He marches into the street to confront a pagan procession and to admonish them to stop their idolatry and to respond to the gospel. Not weak, not timid, (laughs) right? You can't make up that story. And so Ephesus, where Timothy is leading, is this free Greek city in the Roman Empire. There's apparently a a large Jewish tribe there. From this location, you could easily travel east or west across the empire, which makes it a hub for communications. Possibly that's why Paul and Timothy spend a lot of time there. They can get the word out to their churches quickly. And by this time, some of the city's largest revenues is from religious tourists and pilgrims who are traveling to the temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess whose temple there in Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Huge, beautiful temple. The the key takeaway from that is that this is a location that would make the church especially susceptible to what we call religious syncretism, right? The layering of a set of beliefs with another set of beliefs to come up with a whole other system of beliefs. The purity of the teaching of the apostles would have been especially difficult to maintain for them. And even if we just look at what did Paul teach, because he sent a letter right to this church, right? In Ephesians. We see that his major concerns for them are that they understand that Christ has reconciled all creation to himself, Jew and Gentile, and that Christ reconciled people one to another by removing that barrier of the law that separated the people from each other. And then this new people, this new humanity, they live united with Christ, who is the one who fulfills the requirements of the law. And so knowing those teachings in this context, let's finally actually look at our our passage today. 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So for our first section, verses one and two, it's just the greeting, right? What we see in this letter is 
the tone is similar to that of a mandate letter that would have been common in the Greco-Roman world, giving official assignments to governors of the land or subordinate officers. Paul is probably laying out more officially what him and Timothy have discussed his assignment to be, maybe even giving Timothy a document that he can appeal to if he's questioned about what he's teaching. Paul calls Timothy his true child in the faith, something he also says when he writes instructions to another pastor that he's been mentoring, Titus. As Paul is aging, he's more thoughtful about establishing kind of legitimate heirs to inherit the legacy of his ministry and to carry on his teaching. Bible scholar Ben Witherington points out that grace and peace are really standard Paul greetings. But this time, there's an addition to them, right? We saw grace, mercy, and peace in the greeting. And Witherington notes, perhaps not least because the difficult situation was going to require some mercy and grace and compassion, but also some firmness, some clear thinking to sort things out. Our next section, verses three through four, this is Timothy's assignment, right? As we arrive at verse three, we get to Timothy's assignment. His assignment is to charge these people not to teach any different doctrine. I've said this word a bunch of times already now. If you're not familiar, doctrine is a set of beliefs. In this case, the different set of beliefs would be a doctrine other than the doctrine handed down by the apostles, Now I've added another weird word. If you don't know it, an apostle is someone who received their teaching directly from Jesus and they have been commissioned and inspired to extend that teaching out to the people. Paul is an apostle, but he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Paul's an apostle because he received his message directly from Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And so for our purposes, what's probably the simplest is to think of apostolic doctrine or true doctrine as just the New Testament, right? The inspired word of God given to the church through the apostles. And all the confusion with apostolic being applied to kind of different sets of beliefs and different religions. For us, as we talk about true apostolic doctrine, this is what we're referring to. I don't know if I made that more clear or more confusing, (laughs) but I know many times in my life there's been weird Christian words that I just pretend to understand, right? Like, oh yeah, apostolic doctrine, that's my favorite doctrine too, right? And so I don't like throwing those around without trying to at least explain a little bit. But that's where we're at, right? This kind of true doctrine, this sound set of beliefs is being taught to us. And Timothy knows exactly what they are. He's been mentored to know exactly what they are. And since he knows, he's urged by Paul to protect the church from anyone teaching a different set of beliefs. So right away, if Timothy is passive, like me, we're coming in hot, (laughs) right? It's interesting, this word charge, right? It's used... Seven times, charge and its derivative, seven times in this short little letter. Three of them are right here in the first chapter. It's this word to charge, to instruct, to make a formal statement of command. Paul uses it more here than in any of his other letters, almost as much as he does anywhere else in the Bible. Sometimes he doesn't use it at all. Paul is making sure Timothy understands the task at hand. We could contrast this kind of firm, aggressive language with a letter like Philemon 
In it, Paul writes, you know my authority that I have. You know I could command you, but I'd rather appeal to you. But here, Paul's saying no. (laughs) Not you, Timothy. Timothy is going to go commando on these people, right? He is charged. He's going to tell these guys, shut up. This is done. It's not persuasion. It's not appeal. It's not subtle strategies. These are not an option for Timothy. He must boldly charge these men to stop. But why are subtleties not an option? And, and here's why. The heart of this letter, the heart of this series that we'll be in, it's found closer to the middle. If you read ahead a little bit, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us exactly why he's writing. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, right? Here's the house rules, which is the church of the living God. And here's what that church of the living God is. It's a pillar and a buttress of the truth. A buttress is the the extra structural support that holds up a foundation or a wall. You can lean on it. You can anchor to it. It's saying that the church is the basis, the mainstay, the foundation holding up truth for the world. Therefore, our behavior, how we talk, what we speak to one another, is all that more important. How we ought to behave in the household of God is intertwined with the church's role as a pillar of truth. It's why Timothy, as the leader, must know and protect good doctrine. Why each of us must know and protect the truth that an onlooking world needs from us and simultaneously be representing it well. John Stott points out why this idea could be downright offensive to many today. Our culture today would say, he writes, there is no such thing as objective truth, let alone universal and eternal truth. On the contrary, everybody has his or her own truth. You have yours, I have mine. They may diverge widely from each other. They may contradict each other. In consequence, the most prized virtue is tolerance. And it tolerates everything except the intolerance of those who insist that certain ideas are true and others are false. While certain practices are good and others are evil. Truth is a highly charged subject. And it's a high charge that we have to be entrusted to protect it. Let's look at this different doctrine the church needed to be protected from. Paul says they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. The place that we see law and myths, or not myths, but genealogies in the Old Testament is Genesis. There were two other non-biblical Jewish works that would have been circulating around the time. There's the Book of Jubilees, the Book of Antiquities of Philo. Both of these works were large-scale retellings of the Book of Genesis. Both expanded, and sometimes rather fancifully, (laughs) on the stories of Genesis and expanded greatly on the genealogies, adding in people that were never mentioned. And so you could see how maybe Paul is alluding to these works These myths Paul later refers to as Jewish myths and old wives' tales. So something like these stories could be what's going on. Or it could be a bit of that religious syncretism we mentioned earlier, mixing Genesis with some other myths and putting them all together to make uh, some sort of new faith or new teaching or special knowledge that the people in control of the special knowledge have for others. 
We don't know exactly what they were teaching. And honestly, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter at all because what we do know is that there's a clear distinction here, right? What they are doing promotes speculation as opposed to the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stewardship here is a word that was introduced to me as oikonomia. It might be more like oikonomia, if you say it correctly. It's where we get the English word economy, right? It's literally the mashup of two words, house and management or dispensation smushed together. It's household management, the overseeing of resources, the distribution of those resources throughout the household to the workers of the household. It gets translated stewardship, management, plan, administration, probably because none of them really capture its meaning fully. In the book of Ephesians, if we just did a word study of that, which is Paul's teaching to this church, oikonomia or economy or plan or mad management is laid out by Paul, but he's talking about God's oikonomia. In Ephesians 1.10, we see that the forgiveness of sins, the grace that's been lavished upon us was set forth in Christ as an economy, administration to unite all things in him. Then later, Ephesians 3.2, Paul refers to his ministry as an oikonomia of God's grace, a household management of God's grace. Then in 3.9, again, it's God's economy, God's household management of mystery. <laughs> that through the church, that mystery is that through the church, God, God's wisdom is going to be known in the heavenly places. <laughs> you can see how the household management this plan of God is God distributing out the riches of his truth and his plan and even inviting us into a ministry of participating in that management. What these people are doing, these teachers, they're devoting themselves to mixing all these stories, to drawing these wild conclusions, to filling people's minds with special knowledge that only they were to figure out. And what they're doing what it says they're doing, it says that it's the opposite of oikonomia. What they're doing is uneconomical. It's wasteful. It's a squandering of a precious resource. The truth of the gospel of God's plan to reconcile the world through Christ is being wasted here. Our next section, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. So Timothy, he must charge them to stop because the aim of the charge from true teaching is actually going to result in love. When you have a pure heart and you receive this teaching, when you have a purity in your emotions, in your thinking, in the, the seat of decision making as the heart represents in the Bible, when you have a good conscience, you can judge your own actions with discernment. When you have a sincere faith, in the truths that God has revealed to us through his word, the natural overflow of those things is love. That's where true doctrine is leading us. The tone of this word, speculation, it carries the weight of both speculation and also that the speculation is controversial. And so Stott points out two contrasts for us. And the two contrasts are this, the contrast between speculation Versus faith in God's revelation. What weird special knowledge can we put together and make up versus having a trust and a faith in the knowledge that God has already given to us. The second contrast is controversy versus love for one another. 
right? Are we stirring up division and confusing people? Or are we promoting unity and love in the body of Christ? And so if we hold these two contrasts in our hands, we have two very practical tests to identify false teaching. Is it faithful and is it loving? The test of faith, we could ask ourselves, is this from God? Is it in agreement with apostolic doctrine? Does it line up with what's taught to us in the Bible? Or is this simply human imagination, speculation, someone trying to grab at control by having some special knowledge no one else has? The second test, love, we can ask ourselves, does it promote unity in the body of Christ? Now, (laughs) there's an important caveat here because there's lots of very good, very valuable truth that can be divisive, right? So we ask, does it promote unity in the body of Christ? And if it doesn't, then we ask, is it irresponsibly divisive? Me and Rob send each other weird videos all the time. Rob sent me this this video, this preacher going off about how you can't be a Christian and and vote this particular way that he wanted you to vote, right? And this guy, I love this, this guy yells, CNN can suck my dirty sock, right? This weird Christian swearing, right? But this teaching, right, is that irresponsibly divisive? Of course, irresponsibly divisive, right? So here we have, we have faith akin to receiving from God what he has dispensed to us, his truth. We have love akin to building up his church. So we can swiftly and accurately judge teaching ultimately by whether or not it promotes the glory of God and promotes the good of the church. Here we add neither. We just have speculation and controversy. This wasn't from a pure heart or good conscience or sincere faith. And so we'll move to our next section, six through seven, the wandering law teachers, quote unquote. (laughs) They wandered away from those things that produce love and instead they're wasting even more precious time of the church by trying to be law teachers without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. I love that one. Doesn't (laughs) that describe some people so well? Ed Chesney, I agree. He would say, There's nothing quite like a well-worded insult. (laughs) And Paul nails it here, right? There's people who can be so confident and so wrong (laughs) all at the same time. And that's all the more reason for us as a church and as leaders to not be timid when vain, time-wasting discussions arise. You see, if these teachers had understood what they were studying when they looked at the first books of the Old Testament, they would have seen a God that we just saw through our whole story of Exodus that we've just come out of, right? A God who describes himself as compassionate and gracious, a God who describes himself as patient and forgiving, but at the same time, a God who describes himself as just, as a God who punishes the guilty, From the very first story in the Bible, what do we see? We see God blessing abundantly. And we humans, we take that blessing and we just bring on to ourselves curse and exile. And so God brings just consequences, but there's mercy for the next generation. And then what happens? The next generations become increasingly sinful over and over and over till an even more leveling act of justice is required by God. But he saves a remnant. And he blesses them. 
And the story happens again, (laughs) again and again, the pattern over and over and over until we're saying something's got to give here, right? Something's got to change at some point. And so if you read that, you can find no better conclusion. You could not make up a better story to the conclusion of what's happening in the law than that Jesus Christ would come. There's nothing more perfect of a solution for that, that Jesus would come and he would die for our sins, that Jesus would come and he would rise again, giving us victory over the consequences of the sin, and that we would receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, not to earn it, because if we earned it, we would just be back in that cycle of the original story, right? And so something has swerved, (laughs) something swerved really far from what you could call a pure heart or a good conscience or a sincere faith. If you've heard the gospel and you think that the application would be to make up more laws for people to follow. But here's the truth. If we stop (laughs) and think about it, isn't this like us (laughs) Really? Isn't this something we can do at times? Maybe not with this specific topic, but it's pretty easy to fall into the useless discussion arena. Isn't it easy to start going on and on about how we might specifically apply our faith to a situation and get so obsessed with the specific course of action we forget about the faith that brought us there in the first place? Excuse me. (laughs) D.A. Carson He writes about this. He has a friend, he says, who made up this overly simplistic but useful for us caricature of the particular tradition of Christianity that he had come out of. A tradition that he thinks of as having wandered from sound doctrine and the true gospel. And he he analyzed the progression like this. He said, one generation believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain social, economic, and political entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the entailments. The following generation denied the gospel. The entailments became everything. He goes on to write, assuming this sort of scheme for evangelicalism, one suspects that large swaths of the movement are lodged in the second step, and some are already drifting into the third. And so he asks us this question. This is what he writes. What is it in Christian faith that excites you? Today there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or another. Abortion, pornography, homeschooling, women's ordination for or against economic justice, a certain style of worship, the defense of a particular Bible version, and their their countries have a full agenda of urgent and peripheral demands. Not for a moment, he says, is he suggesting that we should not think about such matters or, or throw our weight behind some of them as we do. But when such matters devour most of our time and passion, each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? I read that quote. It's a a gut punch, (laughs) right? Aren't there some Christians more passionate about politics or the Constitution than about the Bible? Aren't there some Christians more passionate about whatever social justice flavor of the month they're excited about than the gospel itself? We need leaders who know and protect true doctrine because we need a congregation that knows and protects true 
true doctrine because we need generation after generation to know and protect true doctrine. Once the gospel is merely assumed, it's moments before the gospel is lost. Our next section, verses 8 through 11, the right use of the law. We still have implications for how we live our lives, right? There's a correct way to use the law. The law is for the lawless, which is all of us outside of Christ living through us, right? A vice list like this is pretty common in Paul's writings and even other places. The Ten Commandments, or, or what we could call Mosaic Law, as we've just finished studying, it's, it's implied here. Portions of it line up pretty perfectly with the Ten Commandments. And it, and it follows that same pattern where the first half of the sins are between God and us. The second half of the sins are between us and each other. Just like Jesus summarized the law, right? As loving God and loving one another. To rabbit trail just for a moment, because it'd be weird to just skip over it, practicing homosexuality would probably be the only real controversial sin on this list. Mostly because most of us know and love people who this practice of homosexuality has become their primary identity. Just to confirm, we are a church that holds to the Bible's teaching on gender and homosexuality as eternal truth that still is for us today. It's also an eternal truth that humanity is created in the image of God and that no sin, no action, no sexual identity or other identity dehumanizes a person to the point that it's okay to hate them or mistreat them or treat them as anything less than valued and loved by God. Two truths there. Most of our culture would look at our first truth and it would make them not want to listen or even believe the second truth, right? Sadly. But all we can do as a pillar of truth, a safe harbor for truth, all we can do is continue to hold up both those truths for them and display them to be true by the way we live and the way we treat them. But that's really a side point because this list is not to highlight any specific sin, but to show that the law does have purpose still, to bring about moral order. The necessity of moral law is still useful today. A fair amount of moral law is actually confirmed to be part of the sound doctrine handed down to us from the inspired words of the, of the apostles. Even Jesus himself, he teaches on portions of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount when he makes all those statements where he says, you've heard it said, but I say. And what he does is he takes us so far beyond Mosaic law to a law defined by love. True teaching still leads to good behavior, while false teaching leads to division and controversy and more sin. And all this, it says here, is in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God. That blessed God who once gave the law to Moses, but has brought a new covenant in Jesus. And the house rules to these people is defined by love for God and love for one another. God's plan to unite a new humanity that we saw in Ephesians, it doesn't undo all law. Rather, what it actually does is creates a new humanity who's actually able to live out the true requirements of the law because Christ is living through them. I'll leave us with this. We'll wrap up. We're coming up on Memorial Day, uh, a great chance to express gratitude to 
people who died protecting us, right? And we always should be grateful to veterans who've died protecting us. But it also makes me think of a, of a story, kind of a strange one, from World War II. During the war, uh, the Japanese, they developed this plan that they hoped would strike fear and confusion in the United States, uh, making these really fairly elaborate balloons <laughs> that they attached bombs to with an interesting system for the weights being able to be released as they fly across the ocean. And they launched thousands of them at just the right place and just the right time for them to hit an airstream and be able to land throughout the United States in hopes that they might start large-scale wildfires or they'd land in densely populated areas. The mission essentially was a bust. <laughs> Not much really happened. There were hundreds of incidents of very minor damage done by these balloons. Some they just found and nothing happened at all. But as the U.S. discovered them, the government made a policy of silence, right? And it was at a time when the media would actually uh, uh, cooperate with a policy like that. And so they have this policy of silence so that it wouldn't do exactly what the Japanese military wanted it to do, strike fear and confusion in people, and it wouldn't leak to them and they'd be encouraged to keep trying similar things. But here's what happens. May 5th, 1945, right here in Oregon, a young pastor drops off his pregnant wife with five Sunday school kids and as they go to have their picnic and the pastor's unloading the car, they come across one of these balloons and these people, this woman and her Sunday school children become the only casualties of World War II on mainland U.S. soil. Now, arguably, <laughs> a policy of silence in this situation might have been a correct war strategy, but it's hard not to wonder what if they knew there was bombs <laughs> among them? What if someone had said, this is a bomb? This is what a bomb looks like. Don't go near it. Don't play with it. Don't investigate it. And as a church, right, we have no such policy of silence. Our policy is the exact opposite. Our policy is boldly protect truth and unity. I'm really, really proud of this church. I think most of you can feel that when I talk about you, how uh, healthy it feels here, how much I've been able to grow, how much I have been encouraged and find joy. But there is still an enemy that wants to blow up our unity. And so even if it might not feel good, and often it won't, <laughs> we have to call out when we hear useless, wasteful, or divisive talk among us. To maintain the health of the church and our witness to the truth for the world, we have to boldly say, that's a bomb, <laughs> right? When you see it, when you hear that kind of thing, when you see division happening, you say, that's a bomb. That's what a bomb looks like. Don't go near it. Don't play with it. Don't entertain it. We are going to properly dispose of it. If our role is 
to be a, a pillar of truth to people living confusing lives in a confusing world with a, a ever incessant flow of information and, and constantly more uh, elaborate and effective ways of capturing their attention and manipulating their actions and their perspectives. Our role is to be a pillar of truth for them. That role is far too great. It is far too important to allow ourselves to suffer casualties on our own soil. Let's pray about that. God, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the challenge that it presents to us. God, we pray that you would make us people who are bold, <laughs> that you would make us people who preserve unity, who major in the majors, <laughs> who talk about love, who talk about the gospel, and even good things, God, that we never uh, promote them to a level they were never intended to be, but that we preserve the main thing, that we hold that up, that we are united. God, we thank you that you have brought us into unity through Christ we thank you for that precious gift. And God, we ask that you would continue to grow this church healthier and healthier. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.